invite you to look with me in 1 Peter, the third chapter. First Peter, chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 8, read through verse 12. First Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, now we ask for what must come from you. You have graciously given us your word, and you have promised that your spirit works through that word. And so now, Father, we pray for the fulfillment of that promise. Open our blinded eyes, our deafened ears. Take away hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. May we understand rightly and apply thoroughly and receive gratefully this your word. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Worshiping this morning, a reference to a quote from Dr. Packer. I read that 43 years ago for the first time at the tender age of 20. I had no way to afford. <laughs> John Owen's works, even one of them. But I could afford J.I. Packer's little pamphlet. Of all things, the introduction to a book got published as its own booklet. And I'll give you a little encouragement. It'll do your soul good to look that up and find it. By the way, it's easier now. It's on the internet. There's a PDF of that thing. Packer did a brilliant job in writing about the old gospel and encouraged my soul again today to hear those words and further to sing of what we do as believers, how we live under this glorious gospel. This is the last part of Peter's material on submission and suffering as we look in this very closely now. In fact, Submission kind of fades into the background. Suffering comes to the forefront. He sums it up with that opening word, finally. You know, some of you said, well, he said finally, and he goes on for two and a half more chapters. Yes. 
he does. He did not mean finally as in conclusion, but finally as relates to this issue. He first dealt with our relationship to governmental authorities. Next, he dealt with our relationship to those who are over us in this world. And then he dealt with the relationship of wives and husbands. But the words about submission are about to fade into the background. The commands about submission are now replaced with words about suffering. And let me give you a warning. If you don't like the word submission, you ain't going to like the word suffering either. And yet they are both very much biblical words. He makes a summary here of the Christian's obligations to others. The heart of the passage is actually verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. So this is what it looks like to have a good life. This is what it looks like to have good days as a Christian. Now you see, people talk about a good life. And there are those whom I think today despair of having such a thing as a good life. And if you listen to the world's definitions of a good life, I can tell you, you are going to be depressed and discouraged. Peter, writing to Christians who had suffered, were suffering, and would suffer even more under Nero in a few years, tells them about the good life. Our problem is we think the good life is a life that is free from any suffering. And the reality is, for the Christian, the Christian's good life is lived in his sufferings. They are not a separate matter. They are not a thing that takes away the reality of it being good. They are actually, in many ways, definitional of what it means to live a good life as a believer in this fallen world. First, the good life affects my relationships in the church verse 8 finally all of you have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind he lists here five characteristics of a life that brings blessing and the virtues he chooses here are not random they are very much connected you could almost see the five virtues he lists here as the fingers on the hand, they are all interconnected with one another. First, he calls us to have unity of mind or to live in harmony with one another. May I encourage you with this, my brothers and sisters, living in harmony does not happen automatically, nor is it by accident. You have to do this thing intentionally. Far too many of you have found yourself frustrated with being around other believers because you think this thing ought to happen automatically and it ought not require any effort on your part. But the very text of Scripture shouts something to you. This is a command. This is a direction. Why do I need to be commanded to do this? Because I don't like to do it. I prefer my way. Boy, doesn't that begin early. It don't take long to figure out what that little one of yours has on their mind versus what you have on your mind. It's time to eat. No. It's time to go. I don't want to. 
Go to bed. I'm not tired. Get up. I'm exhausted. By the by, you do notice that doesn't change as life goes on. Paul will tell us in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Living in harmony, living with one mind, that does not happen accidentally, brothers and sisters. We must do this with intentionality. Unity in a church is an intentional thing. I've often said, and I believe this to be true, I would love for the church to reach the point where being divisive was as scandalous as being adulterous. But you see, that's when you really have to die to yourself and what you want. Live in harmony. Be sympathetic. Paul, Peter could recall here where he had failed in sympathy. I mean, the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Peter could look back at a time when this sympathy was not real in his life. Think about it. Jesus says to him, watch, pray in the garden. And what does Peter do? He naps. Exhorted to watch and pray, he failed. Couldn't stay awake to pray. Attempted to go to battle at the wrong time. And then when push came to shove, denies Christ not once, not twice, but three times. This had to be in his mind when he talks about being sympathetic with one another. Jesus faces his sufferings without human aid. The call to you and I, my brothers and sisters, is that we have sympathy with one another. What that means is, I love the way Steve Brown put it, when you cry, I should taste salt. Learning to care about what, see that goes back to messing with the number one though, doesn't it? We don't want to have to be bothered with either promoting unity nor with actually exercising sympathy unless it's somebody we really like and care about. And then Peter comes along and says, you know what, everybody in that congregation? A people whom you should care about. Love as brothers. Word from which the the name of the city comes, Philadelphia. Genuine fellowship. This love is not by your choice. Now, I make this as abundantly clear as I can. we, We suffer in our culture from such a consumer mentality that we lose sight of the fact that when you get to be part of a church and that church is actually holding forth the gospel and that church is serious about following Christ, that the labor on our part ought to be that we so love the brothers and sisters that we work to maintain the relationship. We get to know them. We all have discovered this, have we not? Some people are easier for us to like 
than other people. And that's true in all human relationships, right? I mean, I've even got some family, they're not here, that aren't my favorite people. Doesn't change the fact that we're family and that in our gathering together, there is a connection. Dear church, hear this. This is not a place you merely picked to be your church to worship. This is a family into which the Lord grafted you, adopted you, put you here. Well, but only like about this many people. Fine. Grow. Expand your circle. You may never be as close to some as you are to others. But my dear family, when you, whenever you refuse to engage, you violate this matter of loving one another and being engaged with one another and having sympathy for one another. I'm always fascinated by folks who you, you can almost see it happen. They, they come, they come and, and they, they're waiting. Is anybody going to talk to me? I don't think anybody's going to talk to me. I knew nobody's going to talk to me. I got an idea. Get up, go talk to somebody. Well, I'm not comfortable. I don't care. This is part of learning to love one another. You see, folks, it's awfully easy to be dismissive of people and cruel toward folks when you don't know what's going on in their life and where they've walked and what they struggle with. When you don't pay attention, you can turn into an absolute arrogant jerk. Because you look at somebody and say, well, well, I would never behave like that. They're not very friendly. They, they, they don't smile about anything. And you don't find out until later. And maybe you never find out. Maybe it's somebody who deals with chronic pain. Maybe it's somebody who every single day of their life deals with a difficult relationship in a marriage. You don't know what's going on. Part of the sympathy, part of the unity in this matter of brotherly love is you get acquainted with more people. Now, I'll let you in on the other part of that. When you do that, you open yourself up for more pain. You can't do this thing well without it hurting if you care. Be compassionate. Uh, Paul says it this way, be kind to one another, brokenhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word compassionate here, that emotion, that tender heartedness is a very earthy word in the original text. It reflects where we often have the greatest physical sense of our emotions. He references splunkna. That's a beautiful word, isn't it? You want a good translation? Guts. Innards. It, it's not about the heart. You know, we, what we do is we, we talk, well, you have my heart. I, my heart is with you. That's not where you feel emotions. This is where you feel coronaries, okay? This is where you feel stuff you don't want to feel, right? <laughs> Start feeling stuff up here. It's time to see a cardiologist, right? Where do we feel? It's feel it here. 
And the writers at the time, they understood that. He uses this very earthy word. It's where we feel these powerful emotions. And we are to have a tenderness toward one another in that. Compassionate care. And finally, be humble. I've said before, this gets messed up in so many ways. Humility isn't you hanging your head and digging your toe into the dirt. You know, I ain't anything. I don't mount nothing. That's just tiresome. C.S. Lewis, I think, had one of the most brilliant definitions of humility I ever saw. Here's what's being humble. Being humble is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is more concerned for somebody besides you. And doing that raises us out of this matter of being so cursedly self-centered and selfish. Candid and Barbara Hughes tell the story of a friend of theirs, Chloe. Chloe had had a terrible year. A lump in her breast was found to be malignant. She endured a mastectomy. Then she had begun the unpleasant process of chemotherapy. She felt extremely ill and cruelly maimed, and each day she faced, was faced with the reality of another indignity. More and more of her hair was falling out. She was going bald. Kent goes on to say, My wife, of course, made several trips from our home in Chicago to see Chloe in Minneapolis, but we all desperately wanted to get together. So we planned a rendezvous at a friend's vacation home halfway between us near Madison. I'll never forget the night we arrived. Bob and Chloe arrived first, and Bob proceeded to fix dinner for us all, and as we stepped from our car, a welcome aroma invited us to the door, and there we were greeted by a smiling, buoyant, bald Chloe. Having tired of her wig, she had discarded it, taped a great big pink bow in its place. Never to Barbara and me had she been more loved. We'll never forget that night with all its laughter, joy, and tears. The secret ingredient, of course, was Chloe's attitude. She didn't spend the evening recounting what she didn't have. She didn't dwell on what she had lost. She concentrated on what she had, and she had concern for somebody outside herself. My dear family, do you understand this business of living the good life? means that especially in the context of other believers, these character traits show, and they show by intentionality. I know some of you say, well, if I don't feel like it, I'm not going to do it. That's hypocritical. No, my friend, do it in spite of how you feel. Don't pretend, but do it anyway. Hypocrisy is being two-faced. That's not the same thing as fighting your own natural inclinations to do the wrong thing so that you can do the right thing. Don't justify sin. Preacher, that's kind of a strong word. Don't justify sin. Relationally. You and I have a good life that affects our relationships to those within the church, but it also affects our relationship to those in the world. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Mm. Shockingly, the uniqueness of Peter's thought in this section isn't that we're called to bless God, but rather we're called to bless those who persecute us. David Helm, we are to bless the ungodly ruler, the unjust employer, the difficult husband. He wants us to bless those who are in authority over us. A Christian community, says Peter, is a community that blesses. It is a reflection of the attitude of Jesus that Peter just talked about in chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we are treated evilly, insultingly, we are to seek to bless those people. You and I live for an inheritance that we get later. For now, we can take the abuse, we can take that and bless them in hopes of their repentance. Mm. Acts chapter 7. Stephen. Preaches a message that gets him killed. And as they stone him, and as he lifts his eyes and sees the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father, O oh Lord, don't hold this against them. We have no idea the eternal impact of that prayer beyond one. For a young man named Saul of Tarsus was standing nearby approving of the execution and watching the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen to death. Now, first take. Doesn't look like that worked out so well because Paul goes on, Saul goes on to try to kill as many Christians as he can. But does not the Lord answer that prayer on a Damascus road? The attitude is seen in Stephen compassionately forgiving and praying for his persecutors, blessing those who hated him. It is the reflection of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Can you imagine, my friends, what it may be like on that final day when you and I, by the grace of God, hear from our Father, well done, good and faithful servant, 
who that same day may see people who hated and insulted us and cursed us turn to us and say, bless you, because your reaction became part of my salvation, and we'll have brothers and sisters in glory who at one time loathed us and now love us because we showed grace. Christian, you see, you live not for this world, but for the next. You live for that inheritance. Will it not be a glorious thing to hear from the lips of those brought to saving faith by our testimony, our blessing, these words, bless you. Bless you. Second, the life, the good life, not only alters our relationships, it also changes our inclinations. Verses 10 and 11 are a citation from the 34th Psalm. We read the 34th Psalm. Part of it this morning is our responsive reading. It's a Psalm of David. In fact, the heading is this, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, if you don't remember the story, David is being chased so hard by Saul that he eventually makes the brilliant decision to go into Philistia, and not only into Philistia, but to the city of Gath. Now, just in case you're not quite sure what that means, there had been a little fight a few years earlier that involved a Philistine champion by the name of Goliath of Gath. Now that tells you how desperate David was that he shows up of all places in Gath. Pretends to be a madman. And I love the way the text reads. <laughs> King of the city says, are you kidding me? I don't have enough madmen around me. Get him out of here. Now we find humor in that, but may I remind you that Psalm opens this way, I will bless the Lord at all times, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Why is this the case? Why is David in this mess? Because twice David gives up the opportunity, twice, to kill Saul. He could have ended the pursuit two different times, yet refuses to strike Saul down. In fact, he seeks to bless Saul. Saul seeks to kill him. And David's lot is not an easy one because of that. Listen to these words. What an encouragement to Peter's early readers who were troubled by the call to submit to ungodly rulers and unjust leaders. In David's obedience, Peter has found one who prefigured Christ in his sufferings. He's found one who emulates the point he's making. And the church now has proof that God does reward the righteous. So we press on in doing good because we've seen again that God is trustworthy. Not only will God bless us, but we have hope about hearing the words, blessed be you from our enemies. Be encouraged, my friend. The Lord's at work. It alters our attitude. 
our inclinations. It alters our speech. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, and here's the instruction, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. <laughs> Come on. Can I write a check? Can, can, can I, you know, can't, can I just, really? You know, Scripture reminds us that there's lots of sins that originate right here. Okay? Boastfulness, iniquity. James will say the tongues of fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, and set on fire by hell. Misrepresentation. Isn't this where we usually find ourselves getting in trouble on a fairly regular basis? I don't know about you folks, but I have discovered over the years, I have a quick draw mouth. Learning not to say the first thing that comes to my mind is still a process I'm learning. I am somewhat given to sarcasm. Not always appropriate. When I get angry, there's lots of things I want to say. And my estimate is, you're kind of in the same boat, right? Peter deals with them here. He says, keep. Keep your tongue from evil. In fact, the word there, keep, indicates a vigorous struggle. In other contexts, it means to stop or silence by death. This is not easy. But it alters my speech. I learn restraint. I hold back. The holding back isn't so that you don't speak the truth. The holding back is whenever my emotions, my antagonism, my sarcasm is getting out of hand. It is not going to do any good. A good life means I control my speech. Further, it alters my actions. I turn from evil and do good and I seek peace. The word therefore seek is not a casual term either. It, the word is translated in other places, persecute. It means energetic pursuit of peace. Now, how in the world am I supposed to do this when life is hard and people are, are mean and they oppress me and I may be persecuted and even my own brothers and sisters in the church can be annoying and difficult and yet here I am, I've got to watch what I say and I've got to watch what I do. How in the world can I do it? Verse 12, 4, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, the good life the good life not only affects my relationships, the good life not only alters my inclinations, the good life amends my observations. It changes how I look. 
Because I'm told three things here. God knows, God hears, and God opposes. God knows. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The Lord knows what you're going through. In fact, my friend, He has ordained what you're going through. This is not a cosmic accident. It's not that the Lord looked away and looked back and thought, oh, my word, Shivers has done it again. How in the world did he get in that mess? No, my friend, he knows what you're going through. He has ordained what you're going through. He knows about your weaknesses. Nothing happens to you except by his will. Suffering's not an accident, it's a calling. The Lord sees you. It's the echo of Psalm 1-6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God sees. God hears. His ears are open to their prayer. We're supposed to cry out to Him. You see, the assumption is when Peter says all this, he knows believers are going to go, Peter, really? What am I supposed to do? Will you do these things? How? He's watching. He's listening. Open your mouth. Pray. Revenge belongs to him, not to me. He'll hear my prayer for deliverance as well as my prayer for endurance. See, we spend so much time praying for deliverance, we don't bother to pray for endurance. And what the Lord wants us to do is endure. So we ought to pray for endurance as well as pray for deliverance. We want to hit the deliverance note all the time. Lord, get me out of this, get me out of this, get me out of this. I hate it, get me out of this, get me out of this. And we're not learning what we're supposed to be learning. And part of what we're supposed to be learning is to endure through the difficulty. Lastly, the Lord opposes. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Evil men may oppose me, but the Lord is against those who do evil, including those who do evil to his children. The Lord will judge those who do evil, particularly those who persecute his people. Now, by the grace and kindness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he may judge them unto life. He may rescue them. And they go from being persecutors to being brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a glorious thing, right? I hope that for those who have ever suffered persecution, I hope that part of your hope and your prayer is that those who persecuted you, one day the scales fall from their eyes and they see the gospel of Christ and they repent and they believe and they're the Lord's. You do know it had to be a glorious, re I don't know what glory is like, I'm going to be careful here, but I imagine that the reception that Paul got from Stephen was a glorious one. Hmm. You see, my friend, a good day, a good life in modern terms is that I get what I wanted, right? I get the house I wanted, where I wanted it, with the income I wanted and the people I wanted to share it with. And, and brother, have you considered how many people 
absolutely ruined their lives in this pagan idolatry pursuit of this. They'll neglect their families to have what they want materially. They'll forsake their spouses to have what they want in somebody else. They'll run off and leave children behind to have what they want. And all the time under this nobility, I must be true to myself. The final words of a descent into hell. Does it ever occur to you, my friend, that in the book of Acts, a good day, a good life in the life of Paul and Silas ended with them backs bleeding, legs in stocks, in a dark dungeon, praying and singing in joy to the Lord. I can't look at that event of Acts chapter 16 without at the same moment remembering a letter to the Philippian church and a word that shows up I believe something like 20 plus times in that four chapters joy rejoice We struggle to hear and heed Jesus' own words. Mark 8, 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. We, we're not too interested in losing a life. Hard to get folks to sign up for that. Now, what we'll do is we'll say, well, I will gladly die for the Gospel, for Jesus. Okay. Not many are going to be called to do that, at least not in our time right now. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to lose your life for the sake of others that are His? Are you willing to lose your comfort? Are you willing to lose in, in the sense of having to deal with awkward people and struggling people and Christians who are messed up and need somebody in their lives? Are you willing to do that? Do you understand that's part of losing your life? Hmm. Friend, don't ever get the idea that most of us are going to get the opportunity to make one big cash out. If our life was worth a million dollars, we think, oh, absolutely, I'd give it all. Tell me whether to die or forsake Christ, kill me now. We want the big million dollar cash in. And you know what the Lord calls us to? <laughs> a buck and a quarter at a time. A quarter of your life here, 25 cents worth. A buck here, a few dollars there. We don't want to do that because that's long, tiresome. I'd rather not. Most of us, my friend, our suffering will not be that we go out in a blaze of glory. It shall rather be that we endured to the end. May the Lord grant His people a good life. Let's pray.